Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. What the hell happened with GameStop and AMC? How did some little tiny Reddit bulletin board manipulate those stocks from four to almost 400 or whatever they were? I mean, people became millionaires overnight. Well, Spencer Jacob did a deep dive into how this happened and wrote a book about it, The Revolution That Wasn't. So let's hear what happened. Can this happen again to other stocks like GameStop? There's objective truth still in poker, and there's not objective truth in stocks, meaning I could make all the right moves and I should win by some calculation, but I might not. Whereas poker, you can make all the right moves and still lose, but you're fine. Over the long term, if you make all the right moves, you'll do fine. And chess, of course, the same thing. But but I, my attraction to day trading mm -hmm. uh, back in 2000, when I started day trading and then in hedge funds and so on, was, was because I loved the game-like aspects of it. Mm -hmm. And it's only a little later I realized how screwed up wall street is it's just uh, basically a bunch of scumbags and illegal activity for the most part well to some extent um but i mean yeah there's there's a lot of there's a lot of scumbags for sure i mean you know the the reason that i i wrote the book i mean i've been uh, i was a financial analyst for a while then i decided i wanted to write about money so 29 years combined that i've been looking at this and you know, back at the, the beginning of the GameStop saga, um, you know, I, I was familiar with Wall Street bets. Like we, we'd talk about it in the newsroom at the Wall Street Journal. Some stock would go up. Oh, why did that happen? Ah, it was uh, Wall Street bets. You know, they're pumping it. And it was sort of a, something that was on the edge of our awareness, but I didn't see it as a very important story. And then one day, I've, I've got a son. I guess he'll be 23 years old by the time this podcast airs. Uh, he's almost 23 now came to me, um, he was home because of COVID and he said, dad, are you going to write about GameStop? And this is like, I mean, he's, he's not particularly interested in, in finance or, or even investing. It's like, well, why would I write about that? And then I pull up the chart and it's way, way, way up the last couple of days. And he said, because my friend Sean bought it and he doubled his money in the last couple of days. And I was like, well, I think Sean should probably sell it. Like he just got lucky. And he said, no, he's not going to sell. 
until it gets to X price. Why not? Does he have, he thinks that's, that he thinks that's what it's worth. I said, no, no, they're like all, you know, and he kind of explained it to me and I went on to wall street bets and checked it out. I'm like, no, this is, this is incredible. It's an amazing story that these people basically sort of, you know, tried to, they didn't successfully, they tried to institute a, a corner in the stock, which is not done these days to squeeze these funds. And, and that was initially what you know, I wrote a letter to, uh, to my publisher, you know, this is before the first article had appeared about it. And I said, this is really incredible. This is going to be pretty epic because these, these funds are being squeezed dry in this way that, that really hasn't been done in, in literally in a century, you know, since securities laws changed. And it's now possible because you have bulletin boards and you have Reddit and you have people banding together online and they're going to do this thing that is legal for them to do because they're, they're, you know, they're doing it out in the open. But it used to be, you know, it would be illegal for three or four funds to do. Like you said that, like, there are a lot of scumbags on Wall Street. Well, you, you know, you can't get together with three or four funds, as you know, and, and squeeze a, a fund that you know is, is short of stock and, and, and bleed them dry. But a million people can do it. There's an important distinction, though. Like, you, if you're a hedge fund, hedge fund A can't call hedge fund B and say, let's crowd into this stock drive the price up because there won't be any shares outstanding. We'll, we'll have all the supply of the stock. This is a case, like you said, with, with Wall Street bets on, on Reddit, uh, everybody could see what we're saying. It's not like somebody's privately calling somebody and right. saying, let's, they're not like colluding pr secretly. They're kind of colluding out and open. And totally, totally. And it's, I mean, it's untested. It's an untested area of securities law, but I don't think that even if you, you said that it wasn't kosher, and I think it is kosher, uh, I don't think there's any possible way you could, you know, go after 900,000 people or whatever it was legally, uh, who, who bought GameStop in, you know, over the course of a couple of weeks in, in January, 2021, there's just no, there's no way that you could, you, you could enforce it. And also there's, there are so many examples of, let's take, let's take the wall street journal. If the wall street journal writes an, or For, Forbes is more, or a fortune, if the if fortune says, oh, a GameStop is a buy and everybody bought it right then when they said it, and then the stock went up. There's nothing illegal there. It's kind of the same what's happening with Wall Street bets. There's one difference, uh, and I'm curious if you agree. The, the, if, if Forbes says, oh, such and such stock is a buy, usually they mean it's a buy because earnings are growing. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a new CEO. He's very smart. They just did a big deal. Mm -hmm. They have all this real estate that is not being valued correctly. So they make kind of an argument on what the intrinsic value of the stock is. And they right. say, oh, it's higher than where it is. Whereas what all Wall Street Bets was doing was saying, hey, if we all do this and there's a bunch of these hedge funds short it, and I'll get to, we'll get to what that means in a second, um, we could force the stock up. So they were making kind of a more, an argument based more really on the game-like aspects of the stock market rather than what's considered a, an ethical argument. It's usually considered ethical if you're arguing for value mm -hmm. and it's usually considered unethical if you're playing it like a game, even though it really is a game. Well, I don't think there's anything unethical about it. It's just different because, oh, I, it's, because it's a tactical thing. I mean, here's the thing though, you know, if you have, I mean, and this, this is in, in fact what happened, you know, you have a bunch of people saying, hey, if we do this, the stock price is going to go up buy, don't sell. You know, the fact is that a lot of those people did sell. I mean, the, the evidence is, is there that except for the very early days of the run-up, you had a lot of, of retail holders bailing on, 
on GameStop and AMC and things like that. You know, so I mean, the 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 thing is that I mean, like as a journalist, you know, you said like you're writing the first draft of history, and the first draft of history, and and this is what I thought in the first couple of days as well, was this is incredible, this is revolutionary. You know, these guys are. Uh, upending Wall Street and they're changing everything and they're really flexing their muscles in a way that retail investors have never been able to do before. And it's true that they did flex their muscles and it's an incredible story. And I mean, I, I tell the story in my book about about how they how they did it. And really, and I, I go back a year, year and a half and and tell about how all, all these different things fell into place precisely for it to happen. But I think the, the majority of, of, of people who participated didn't make much or any money and 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 many of them lost money because anything i mean you know you can it's just the greater fool theory you know any rush of people into a, a stock whether or not there are a lot of short sellers in it will pump something up as you know and then you, you need to be savvy enough to to get out and some people were and there are a lot of people who especially people who are very very late to it it's like late converts to a religion who were sincere and saying yeah diamond hands screw those guys I'm never selling. I'm never getting out. And they were the ones who 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 bought in very close to the top. And of course, GameStop is today when we're speaking is still elevated, although it's about half the level that it was at the peak of the, the the GameStop mania. They wound up losing money and taking a loss, or not not making a fortune as they expected. And a lot of them, to be fair, bought in with one or two shares or whatever, or or bought call options just because they wanted to kind of stick it to the man, which is fine. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, they, they wound up losing their premium and, and losing money and, and they might still own it, but they, they might've bought in above $400. And, and today we're closer to 200. What was that? What was the low? Like where did GameStop start? And then, and then we'll, we'll back up and get to the whole story. Well, GameStop, it was, was, and still is to some extent, but was a, a troubled retailer of video games. And I have, I have three sons. Uh, I guess at the time that this podcast airs, they'll be between the ages of 15 and 23. So, you know, I rode from PlayStation 1 to 2 to 3 to 4 to Xbox to everything. You know, we we made many, many visits with with them trading in games to GameStop. And in recent years, I mean, I could just tell you this from my personal experience, it became less and less of a thing because physical media became less and less of a thing. And right. that was GameStop's edge. And they made, and I... I have edited many articles about GameStop, and it was kind of really a curiosity by the time the the GameStop mania came around, because we only really wrote about GameStop to get insight into these much larger, more successful companies that made video games and that made consoles. Uh, GameStop was, everyone knew it was a dying business, and these hedge funds knew that it was a dying business. It got down during the early days of the pandemic to $2.57 a share. It had been a $40 stock a few years earlier. So it was, it had not made money in four years. Uh, it had its fifth CEO in four years. It was, it was going nowhere. And you had a couple, you know, of, of value investors who liked it. Michael Burry, who was made famous by the big short, uh, was, was in it and was a believer that there was more value there. He didn't think that it would go to $400, which it did. It went to $483 at the peak of the mania. Right. So, so let me ask, let's go ask some questions. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just sure, want to no set the stage that, okay, it was around $2 and quite reasonably, like, I don't know anything about GameStop except that I visited there with my daughters back in the day, yeah. but quite reasonably it's, it's possible to think, okay, nobody goes and buys games in a store anymore. As far as I know, you buy games for your, you know, you download them and 
can play them that way. And uh, just like GameStop's like a blockbuster for games. So it's yeah, normal yeah. to think that it's going to go bankrupt. And you had huge hedge funds like uh, Melvin Capital that you mentioned in the book. You had these multi-billion dollar hedge funds that were short and very publicly short GameStop. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, um, you had guys like Michael Burry who, who were long. And then you had Wall Street uh, bets. Uh, and this is just to set the stage. Wall Street bets sort of were, they were aware of all these mega hedge funds that were short the stock. And one and by pumping the stock up, you could scare the shorts. They, uh, this gets technical, but they have to buy the stock mm -hmm. in order to get out of their short. And so it created this rush of buying that ultimately drove it up past 400. That's right, yeah. That's a good summary. I wanted to ask, why was Michael Burry, again, Michael Burry was featured in The Big Short. He was famously essentially short the housing market and housing derivatives during the uh, 2008 financial crisis. And he made, you know, a ton of money on that. He's known as a very strange guy. He's, um, I believe in general, he's short the economy, but like right now, but he was very, he, he was a big believer in GameStop. Why was he a believer in GameStop? You know, Michael Burry is a, a value investor. He bought in, um, around three or $4 in the summer of, of 2019 because he thought it was worth more. And he thought that the company could do things to like buy back stock. They had cash. Um, you know, he had his reasons. He had his fundamental. But their reasons. business model is is bad. Like, what what did he think about their business model? Um, so he he specifically, you know, didn't say that like, oh, this is going to be a huge home run. This company is going to do really well. But I mean, there's a class of value investor out there that says, you know what, this thing is too beaten down. There is a range of possibilities. There's a range of probabilities. And I think that if this company gets its act together, it could be worth not four dollars, but six dollars or eight dollars or ten dollars a share. He didn't think that his thesis wasn't that there are too many people out there who were pessimistic about it and we're going to squeeze them and, and make, force them to buy back stock. And just, I mean, you gave a really good summary there of, of what happens when people are short of stock. But just in, in a nutshell, for, for people who are not familiar, you know, there are certain types of bets that you can make where you can lose all your money. If you buy a stock, the stock could turn out to be Enron and it goes to zero and you lost all your money. The worst thing that can happen and you have to be very unlucky is for you to lose all your money in the stock market. But there's a class of investor out there that can lose an infinite amount of money uh, because they are um, in the derivatives market or they're short of stock. If you're a short seller, the most you can make is 100% because you shorted a stock, which is mean you, you sold it without owning it. You borrowed it, sold it. It goes bankrupt, goes to zero. Then you, you know, you buy it back for one cent, and then you you made 100% or 90-something percent. But right, the most right, you like, can like, lose like, is infinite. It's just a theoretical possibility, but you you have this theoretical, you know, you better be pretty confident. You better be pretty right, or not at least not too wrong about your bet. And, and there was like a, a lot of hubris out there because these funds, they didn't have a lot of targets out there. It was very, it's a very difficult time. People thought, I think it was like a great, the short sellers are really vilified. They might think that 2019 and 2020 were some great time to be a short seller, but it was the exact opposite. It was a terrible, difficult time to be a short seller. And they they were shorting things like Tesla and you know, getting their, their asses handed to them. And the, they, you know, they saw things like GameStop and AMC and Blackberry, these meme stocks, and they said, you know, these are has been dying businesses. These are pretty short, safe things to be short. And they weren't necessarily making a naked kind of bet that like these things would would go to zero and that's the entire nature of my bet. So 
you mentioned Melvin Capital. Melvin Capital mostly is is long the stock market. They're they're in the business of buying stocks that they think are going to do well. And Gabe Plotkin, you know, he he made almost all of his money by being long stocks by basically just like you or I would buying a stock that he thinks is going to be worth more you know, in the future. But he he enhanced, he juiced his bet by also being short other stocks. So he's long and short. He's net long. He wants the stock market to go up. But he said, instead of just buying, I don't know, maybe he bought Best Buy and said, that's a good business. You know, this, this business is going to do really well if electronic sales do well. But like, what if, what if they don't do well? What if the whole business kind of stinks? What if there's a pandemic or what if whatever? I mean, he wasn't betting on a pandemic. What if retail sales really do poorly? Well, I'm in addition to, to buying this stock that I think is going to go up, I'm going to sell this stock that I don't own that I think is a bad business. And I'm going to make money on both ends. So it's going to smooth out my returns. And that was the, the entire nature of his bet. But that those bets became so crowded because people in the hedge fund world crowded into shorting the same handful of pretty lousy companies and GameStop included. And the trades just became crazily crowded and they just didn't see what could go wrong. And, and they certainly didn't think that like, you know, that they would be forced into a corner because they never imagined that a bunch of retail players would, would squeeze them that way. And that's, that's the amazing, strange thing that happened with the GameStop squeeze. Right. And, and just to unpack a little bit there. So if you short a stock at a hundred and it goes to zero, you make a hundred dollars. If you buy a stock at a hundred and it goes to 200, you make a hundred dollars. But if you short a stock at, at a hundred, meaning you're betting against it mm -hmm. and it goes to 300, you bet a hundred dollars, but you lost 200, the 300 minus the, the 300 where it currently is minus the 100 you shorted right. it at. Exactly. And, and there's no, and so, there's no upper limit to where a stock can go. Right. Like I, I, um, I, I knew a guy once who sh shorted like his, he was, he was a bad investor. He shorted like his whole net worth of a stock that was at five that he was sure was going to zero. They had earnings and they blew it away in earnings and the stock went to 20 overnight. And so he lost four times 400% or 300% on his money overnight. And he had to declare bankruptcy. Like that's the danger of going short. Yeah. So it's not, it's not, it's, it's not really the opposite of going long because you can lose infinite. And some of these big hedge funds were short the stock at like two, $3. And when it goes to 400, you're in trouble. You lost 200 times your investment. Right, right. But, but so, but see, that's, that's something that they just never expected. Like they, they lacked imagination. They didn't think, because let's say like you, you shorted GameStop at $5 and then let's say, I don't know, Best Buy shows up and says, you know, we think we're going to buy GameStop. We're going to transform it and we're going to, you know, weave it into our, you know, and we're going to pay $8 a share or something. Well, you know, if you were Melvin Capital, like that would be a painful loss, but it wouldn't be a devastating loss because it's just one of many bets that you made, but you don't think it'll go to $483, right? That's something that is just not, you know, that's not in your game plan. You don't, you can't imagine that that's going to happen. And why would it go up there? You know, because the GameStop cured cancer. I mean, you know, th th there's no legitimate reason for that to, to happen, but it did happen. And it happened because these, you know, because it was the tail wagging the dog is these, you know, there were a few pretty sophisticated people on these bulletin boards. There are a lot of unsophisticated people. And they said, Hey, 
This is called a gamma squeeze. This is called a short squeeze. This is how it works. To get the most bang for the buck, this is what you need to do. And we'll squeeze these guys. And, you know, and they, they spelled the whole thing out. And it was, it was all there in black and white. Of course, I mean, there were, you know, there are tens of thousands of posts, you know, daily on some of these, uh, these Reddit boards. And so it's not like it, it's, you know, and it's not like Melvin Capital was paying people to go through Wall Street bets and, and look for pearls of investing wisdom among these tens of thousands of bets. But, but it was there. You can go back and you can see it. And, and it, you know, I spell out how they kind of hatched their, their plot in, in my book. Um, and it was, it was brilliant, but it also most people didn't make money. Most people were sort of accomplices who wound up losing a bit of money rather than making money. Right. Like, so, so it seems like, and, and your, your book, the revolution that wasn't is really the description of what happened with all of these meme stocks and what's going on. I should add also that a lot of times, so, so, so first off, a short squeeze means you see that a stock has a lot of investors short the stock. And so again, you try to uh, get people to buy it so that it, it squeezes the people who are short. They have to buy back their short in order to get out of the position. And that drives the stock up even further, which causes even more people who are short to, to get squeezed. And GameStop was over a hundred percent short, like more than a hundred percent of its shares were short. Yeah. 140% at one point. Yeah. Which is, which is, which is crazy. I mean, that's a lot. And they used like kind of weapons. They kind of, they, they kind of they juiced the the process by using the options market, and right. the options are are typically not something that retail investors dabble in. But in 2020, they options bets became very very popular, and call options in particular, and kind of lottery ticket type options in particular, where people retail investors, you know, it, it really is kind of akin to gambling. It's a, it's most of the time it's a sucker's bet. You buy uh, an out-of-the-money call option. It's basically you're saying like the stock is at ten dollars, and I'm buying the right to purchase the stock at let's say twelve dollars next week. Well, what are the chances that the stock is going to be twelve dollars or more next week? Pretty low, in generally speaking. So you're, the chances of you losing all your money are quite high. But then you can buy those options for a few pennies, right? There's, it's still worth something. There's a chance it's going to happen. But basically, they, they turned around and they said, you know what, if we buy enough of these options, these options dealers have to go out if the stock rises and they have to buy the stock because options dealers aren't, aren't taking a risk. You know, they're just playing both sides of the market. And once the, the stock price starts to rise, they're going to have to start paying big money to buy, actually buy the stock to protect themselves because they don't want to get, you know, get caught with their pants down. And that's what they grasped was that these options dealers will do the buying for us. We just have to you know, pay these pennies and buy lots and lots of options. And as the stock price starts to rise, as these options dealers start to protect themselves, that's going to force the price higher. And so it's like, a, you know, like pouring nitroglycerin in, onto the fire. You know, they, for a relatively small number of dollars out of our accounts, we can cause these people who have a lot more money than us to buy lots of the stock. And it's going to become a self-reinforcing kind of thing. And that's what's called a, a gamma squeeze. And that's what they engineered. And so that, you know, that also was something that, you know, had not happened previously. Right. Cause I, I just want to add to that, which is that a lot of times people observe stocks that are a hundred percent short, meaning a lot of people are short the stock and they say to themselves and they say to others, let's squeeze this stock. Let's get, let's draw, let's drive up the stock and, and everybody will get squeezed. But the reality is it's very hard to do yeah. because 
you know, it's not like the short sellers are sitting there waiting to be squeezed. They're putting out news stories about why the company is bad. They have billions of dollars to keep selling short to, to fight any buying that occurs. And like you say, it's unusual to go from $2 to $400. They're not really risking, you know, bankruptcy in most cases. So, uh, this was a very unusual situation, like, like overstock for years was over a hundred percent short. Mm -hmm. And, and what's his name? Patrick, um, Burn. Uh, yeah, Pat, Pat Burn. Yeah. Yeah. Patrick Burn. Um, yeah. he was always trying to get people to squeeze the stock upwards and he kind of failed at it. He just never was able to do it. And, yeah. and there's other examples like this. This was a very specific situation. So what, what was kind of the magic formula? And you describe this in your book, but I, I you know, just for the listeners, what, what would you say is the magic formula that got the, the combination of resources that made this short squeeze happen and caused disaster for hedge funds made millionaires out of just, you know, Reddit users who were mm -hmm. buying a few shares and, uh, you know, got Elon Musk involved, got, mm -hmm. uh, Chamath, whatever his last name is involved, Mark Cuban, everybody. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I think the, the interesting thing is like, you have to look back. I think that this was a, an event where you had four or five or six things fall into place over the course of, of more than a year. It's a perfect storm. So you had, first of all, you had brokerage firms, retail brokerage firms that were looking at Robinhood. Robinhood is, uh, is not the first firm to have $0 commissions, but the first really successful firm. And between 2016 and 2021, even though Robinhood is a much, much smaller firm than Schwab and Fidelity and Ameritrade and all these guys, they, about half of new retail accounts opened were opened at, at Robinhood. And what's the appeal to Robinhood? What's the appeal? Yeah. Why Robinhood as opposed to each Schwab or whatever? Because it was, they, they built. So the appeal to Robinhood is that Robinhood built this app and then they, it's like an app with a brokerage firm attached to it rather than a brokerage firm with an app. So, you know, even E-Trade, which, you know, came to life during its name, you know, during the uh, the dot com boom, so you know when the internet existed, unlike Schwab, unlike Fidelity, unlike some of these other firms, um, you know their interfaces, you know they're always playing catch up. They're saying, "Oh yeah, we'd be nice to have a good app that that's easy to use." What Robinhood did is they designed this really slick and really, in many ways, addictive. And I can I'll get into that later if we have time. But they they created this very very slick interface that was aimed at a, a Gen Z and millennial audience and it was gamified. It was, you know, it, it, it kind of lured you in. It kept you engaged. The typical, you know, I mean, how, how often do you check your, your 401k statement or if you have a 401k or IRA? Probably not, not too, too often, or maybe you do, maybe you do, but most people definitely don't check it daily. Uh, Robinhood traders who were active checked their account on average, more than eight times a day. So it was just something that was in your pocket, on your phone. It was this really beautiful app. And you, you kind of felt like you were missing something if you didn't check it, just like you feel like you're missing something if you don't go on Twitter or go on Facebook or go on Instagram. And that was the, the genius of it. And their commissions were zero. And in late 2019, every other broker threw in the towel and said, okay, screw it. We're, we're going to uh, set commissions to zero because we can't beat these guys otherwise. And they were scared. They thought that this was going to be a, a really bad thing for them. They said, we make a lot of money from commissions. We make money other ways too, but we make a lot of money from commissions. But 
you know, contrary to their expectations, their business exploded. Everyone's business exploded. You had this real rush of people opening retail accounts, especially at Robinhood, but also, you know, all the big old firms. You know, they they had, uh, in some cases, a doubling of their business within a few months. But how would they make money with no commissions? Well, because they make money other ways. They make money by taking the stock that's in your account and lending it out to short sellers, ironically. Robinhood mm. is, it makes a lot of money lending out sh- stock to short sellers. Don't tell anybody that, right? I mean, you know, this, like, they're kind of portrayed as the enemy. They make uh, a lot of money charging you uh, interest on margin interest. People When people borrow money using their stock to buy more stock than they have money to buy. Uh, they make money through payment for order flow, where they sell your order to a company like Citadel or Virtu Financial, and that's how they make their money. They, they sell your order, and those guys execute your trade, and we can get into that too. There's a whole kind of conspiracy theory around payment for order flow, but it's, it's not that really that complicated, and they pay for the, the, uh, the you know, basically being sent your order. They execute your order, and then they pay you for it. They pay Robinhood for it, and Robinhood can give you back some of that money if they want to. They don't give back very much of it. They keep most of it. That's their main source of revenue. They sell the orders they get. So Robinhood wants to get as many orders. They don't care what the orders are. They want to get as many orders as possible. Option orders are better than stock orders, and reckless orders are better than sober orders, and market orders that can be executed right away are better than kind of careful limit orders that more experienced traders would execute. That's their business. They want people to go crazy and trade. And the amount of trading that that occurred in early 2020 was already very high. And then the pandemic hit. And the pandemic hit uh, at a time that you had this real surge of interest of, of, by young people for the first time in years in buying stocks and investing. Or you, know, you might say in not, not investing, you might call it speculating, and that might be a, a more accurate word for it because a lot of them were basically, you know, let's buy this cannabis stock, let's sell it, uh, buy it at 10 in the morning, sell it at two in the afternoon or whatever. I, I, you know, that you can debate whether or not that's investing or not. Uh, an investment that lasts four hours, I don't know. But there was a surge in in stuff like that. And then the pandemic happened and you had all these, and it's mainly young men in their late teens, early 20s, who had gotten very, very active in betting on sports in particular. It's the one type of gambling where it, which is inversely correlated with age. You know, every other type of gambling, slot machines and playing cards and things like that, it's more older people than younger people. But sports gambling, sports betting, had just been legalized in many, many states, was done through these slick apps that look very similar to Robinhood, by the way. So, you know, you, op- you open up a Robinhood account, it looks pretty similar to, um, you know, uh, DraftKings or, or whatever. And all of a sudden, there were no sports, no sports to bet on. Every sporting event in the world was shut down except for Korean baseball, right? And, you know, hmm. and people were, you know, they were looking for something to do. And you survey people and they said, you know, opening up a brokerage account uh, people who did open up brokerage accounts, the top response was, I was looking for something to do. I was bored. They had no job to go to. They may have moved back in with mom and dad. They got a $1,200 stimulus check. Uh, their savings rate went way up because there was no place to go out and spend their money. They had, so they had a bit of extra cash. And you, at the, for the first time, you actually, for, with a small amount of money, with like $20 if you wanted, you could buy stocks because you could buy a fraction of a stock through these apps. No commission. You could buy uh, a tenth of a share of Tesla and then sell a share of a tenth of Tesla and you'd make a little bit of money. And you're like, okay, I, this, that was easy. That was great. And you had a lot of volatility, which made it very exciting. The more, the, the kind of the, the bigger the risk and the bigger the reward, the more exciting it is. And that's what pe- got people into options. Because an option is more like 
a bet on a sporting event, right? Uh, you you want to bet on Green Bay Packers next weekend to uh, to you know cover the spread. You're either right or you're wrong. You know, you either made some money or you lost all your money, right? And and options are the same thing. Options are very very familiar to these people because it's an all or nothing gamble. An option expires on a certain date. It might be a real long shot. You might be betting on I don't know, um, you know. Lafayette beating Bama, right? Uh, in some kind of cupcake game. And then if it happens, you make a hundred times your money because there's no way they're going to beat Bama. And then you're right. And you, you, you made a ton of money or they cut, you know, or Bama doesn't cover the spread or whatever. And that was the kind of stuff that got really, really popular. You had an explosion. And that was the environment that kind of created very, very fertile ground for the meme stock squeeze in January of 2021. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I I became a really good guest of Airbnbs. And I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house... I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. 
I've used ZipRecruiter, particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldercher, would you like to apply to be VP of en- Entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use HIMS for now. Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that? There's a whole section just with my name on it. Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See Hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. So what triggered things? So basically GameStop was shitty company, shitty stock price. It was $2 and change. All these very smart hedge funds were short against it. We're betting against it. And then you have a couple of people on Wall Street bets that start saying, hey, all these big guys are shorted. Let's buy it. Let's, let's go along. What happened and why Wall Street bets just lit on fire? So Wall Street Bets originally was just one of of many, and it wasn't a particularly popular one until the last few years, forum for investing. But there are different types of forums for investing. Reddit is, Reddit's in the title of my book or the subtitle of my book, and um, I I love Reddit. Reddit is a great community. It's a great way to to get information, but it's also a, a great place to get bad information in some cases because you had a lot of young people who uh, were saying, I- I'm, okay, I opened a brokerage account. I want to find a place to, um, you know, to find out about Wall Street Bets. I say, James, let's say you and I are both on, a, on Wall Street Bets, right? 
and I put a post on there and I say, uh, I just put 5% of my net worth into the stock. I think it's undervalued. Yay me. And you're like, I just took out a second mortgage and bought out of the money, uh, call options expiring next week on this stock. I'm betting everything. I'm betting my entire net worth on it. Now your, your post is a lot more interesting than my post. And so your post is going to be a lot higher up because it's going to get upvoted, um, which is a kind of a human driven algorithm. And so when you go on some Reddit forums, it's a lot of sober investing advice. There are things, you know, kind of John Bogle school, index funds, stuff like that. But Wall Street Bets specifically was this place where you had people who were into doing, and they, sometimes they said they were doing things that they weren't really doing, by the way. But whatever, the crazier you were, the better memes you had, the higher up you were. And so if and, I'm a, and, and that's legal for them to say stuff they're not really doing, right? Well, it's some person with a pseudonym. I mean, I, I guess it it's not illegal. I mean, you know, I mean, some people just they, you know, the the money, the the value that people get uh out of the internet on Twitter and Facebook and uh on Reddit is getting attention. I mean, I think a lot of them were legitimately doing it. And people would post screenshots of their accounts saying that they were doing this stuff. And then, then it was like a lot more believable. Uh, and that that was the kind of a specific thing to Wall Street Best. They'd post a screenshot of how, look how much money I made or even look how much money I lost, which is a kind of a thing on Wall Street Bets. Uh, and so your post is going to be a lot more interesting than my post. So if I'm a, a complete newbie trying to figure out how to invest, I don't know anything about investing. I'm 21 year old uh, kid with no uh, background in finance or investing. And let's go on Reddit and, uh, wow, look at this, you know, and this guy made a lot of, this guy, James made a lot of money. And like, he's, he, that's, that's really cool. I'm going to, people are more likely to emulate you than me. And so it became this place where reckless behavior was, was encouraged. And so that was the kind of the ethos of it for better or for worse. I'm not criticizing the, the forum, but that's what you were likely to, to see. And, you know, if you piped in and said, Hey, don't you think that's a little risky? Don't you think that's a little, whatever, like you, you were kind of, your objections weren't very visible. And remember you have thousands and tens of thousands of posts. So, you know, there's not that much stuff that's, that's very visible. The stuff that tends to be very visible is the stuff that's, that's way out there. And so it was a, a, a place where big bets, as the name suggests, was encouraged. That was a kind of the forum where people wanted to see that stuff. It wasn't our investing. It was our Wall Street bets. Uh, and, and that forum had, let's say, the beginning of the meme stock squeeze. It, it had grown from a few years before having a you know, couple of hundred thousand people to having two million people. Its, it's membership doubled in the year before the, the meme stock squeeze. How and many then, people do you think post on Wall Street bets per day now? Now, see, now it's kind of, it's, it's déclassé. Like now Wall Street Bets is not the place to be. Now there's Super Stonk and RAMC and RGME and, and what have you. But um, there are tens of thousands of posts per, per day, or they were at the peak. And a lot of them were, uh, were erased very quickly because they didn't meet certain karma requirements. But the, the posts that are visible number in the, the hundreds, certainly the number of posts that you can read if you go on there, are in the hundreds and people will, you know, would go on there several times a day and see what's going on and see what people are doing and what they're talking about and what's trending. And now these hedge funds, by the way, they have, you know, they, they pay people or they have their own engineers build apps. Tell me what's trending on these forums. Tell me what's trending on Twitter. Tell me what's trending on wall street bets and super stomp. And the computer programs that they write 
can read that a lot faster than you can. And they have natural language processing and they try to interpret what's real and what's likely to get traction. And, and so, you know, if, if your game is to basically invest according to the, the greater fool theory, like, you know, let's see, let's see what's trending on social media. I'm going to buy that and then sell it two hours later. You're, you're, you're very unlikely to, to outsmart the, the algorithms that certain hedge funds have put in place right now. Like it's, it's so hedge, totally... hedge funds right now are monitoring uh, sentiment on like social media and they'll, and they've statistically modeled, like if there's this many tweets, all of a sudden spiking on Twitter for the next two hours, this might be a bias statistically likely. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're looking at it. Maybe they're looking at it just to see, Hey, do I need to be careful? Cause I shorted the stock or I have a, an options position and I want to see, uh, I, I don't want to get run over like, uh, Gabe Plotkin did at Melvin capital and lose $6 billion in a couple of days. Uh, and maybe they're doing it because they're a much smaller hedge fund and they want to make a bit of money. They want to ride the wave and, and their whole game is, is just basically sort of making uh, a couple of percent here, a couple of percent there. I mean, there, I, you know, th there's both of them and there are people who are just sort of just casually watching it. They pay services to watch social media. I've spoken to people who have that. They have, you know, they have their smart kids, you know, write these things. A machine can read a lot faster than you can you can read and a machine can trade a lot faster than you can trade. So I, I just, my message for people out there who think that they're smarter or faster or better than uh, hedge funds out there, like, okay, yeah, the meme stock squeeze happened, but don't, don't think that you can consistently do this and go out and day trade. I mean, James, you were a day trader. Tell, tell me what, what was your experience? Did you, did you make money or I guess you, you made, you did it in an era when it was, easier to do. What was your, what, what, what impression did you get? Is it, is it easy to beat the game or is it hard? It, it is very hard to beat the game. And I will tell you, I, I, I was a day trader 20 years ago. So I was able to write software that would do things like what you're describing. There wasn't social media then, but I would look for statistical patterns in the market and bet on those. And back then there weren't as many quantitative hedge funds. So there was room to maneuver, particularly if you played with smaller stocks or stocks, or you know, even if you play with the bigger stocks where there just wasn't as much money in quantitative hedge funds that they could manipulate the market. So it was possible to, to find statistical anomalies that, that, that worked, but I will, I'll, I'll say it's a very difficult game because for instance, one time I wrote about one of my statistical strategies. And it, it had worked maybe 99 times out of the prior 100. The second I wrote about it, it never worked again. Right, right. <laughs> so, so once information gets out there as a strategy, uh, it goes away. So for instance, the other day, someone was telling me a strategy he had uh, that he thought was a very interesting strategy. And I said, listen, you have the strategy. It's a known strategy, by the way. There are hundreds or even thousands of PhDs working for hedge funds that are right. trying to optimize the strategy using sophisticated, you know, computers and so on. And you're not, unless you, unless you know why you have an advantage over those PhDs with computers, you're not going to win. And that's the truth now. Like quantitative trading is a different game. Like I wouldn't get involved in it now because it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, unless it's, unless you unless you understand why you have uh, an advantage, maybe you're in micro cap stocks, mm -hmm. which hedge funds don't play as much because they're, they're, the hedge funds are too big, or, or maybe you're using a sophisticated option pricing strategy that again, option volume is not so big. So hedge funds can't really play with options, you know, on, on even medium sized stocks. So unless you have a sophisticated strategy, it's not going to, it's not going to work. You have to know what you're doing.
So it's a different game than it was 20 years ago. Yeah, and hence the title of my book. I mean, I, I hate to be a downer, but it's that's the revolution that wasn't because, you know, there are a lot of young people now who are in markets who think it's it's easy. And that maybe they, some of them haven't even made money, but they think that, you know, they, they've sort of, you know, they have cool memes and uh, they, they can push around these hedge funds. And, the, you know, yeah, it happened. But the, the period around the meme stock squeeze, if you look at Wall Street writ large, it was a great, period for them. It was like a lot of rich, older guys, you know, who you kind of resent because there's a lot of economic resentment out there, made a lot of money. A couple lost money, but a lot of people whose names you don't even know made a ton of money because of that phenomenon. And it's a zero-sum game. I mean, the, you know, that money is coming out of your pocket. Right. It's totally a zero-sum game. And what were some individual stories, and you write about them in, in the book, but what were some individual stories where people who just went from nothing to, to millions of dollars on some of these meme stocks? Well, the most famous individual story, I, I don't think is typical of, of these guys at all. Keith Gill, Roaring Kitty, Deep Fucking Value, Keith Gill was a CFA charter holder, so different than, than these guys. He, you know, he had this gold-plated investing credential. He was in uh, financial education for Mass Mutual. And he started making these really pretty sound cerebral arguments for why he thought GameStop uh, was undervalued. He thought it was worth, you know, not $4, that thought it was worth $8, $10, maybe more than $10. He thought he was going to, you know, make some money. It was a calculated bet. He didn't assume he would make money, but he was playing the probabilities. You know, clearly a very smart guy, um, but a young guy too, 34 years old at the, the time of the squeeze. And so young enough to kind of be in this meme world. Um, and at first he didn't get any traction. You know, he would, you know, you look at his social media posts and you look at how many times his videos reviewed and it just fell flat. No one was interested. People, you know, he, he did it just for fun. Um, you know, arguing his, his investment case, but it didn't go anywhere. And then when things started to take off, you know, he was, he really had diamond hands, quote unquote, you know, he held on to these options positions that he had bought for, uh, maybe 20 cents. And he made uh, a 10,000% return. And at one point, he had uh, an account worth over $50 million from having started with about $50,000. Um, and what, what, what happened to him ultimately? What happened to him ultimately is uh, he, well, you know, we don't know what's happening to him right now. He could have made a lot more money because he was so influential. Basically, people were, were following him. And so I tell the story, you know, through the progression of, of his, his posts and his timeline, because he became, he went from being this kind of fringe fi figure who no one was paying attention to, to all of a sudden being the center of attention through this, this kind of this, this idea called social proof. You know, if you have, have been very successful, whether you, you were lucky or smart or whatever, if you've been very successful doing something, you could be out, you know, playing the lotto. You know, if you, you won the lottery, you could go out and, and put a social media post out there, how I won the Powerball. And some people are going to pay attention to you because you were successful. You know, he was, I'm not saying that his success was completely uh, down to luck, but he lucked into the fact that he was buying the instrument with the most upside. He was buying call options, uh, way out of the money call options, the ones that have the biggest payoff in the stock that just happened to be very heavily shorted. He wasn't even, it wasn't even as part of his thesis originally. And then he gradually realized, you know, that's a real possibility that there could be a short squeeze in this thing. People on, on Wall Street Bets are talking about how 
hedge funds are so heavily short this stock. And he held on and he held on and he held on through thick and thin and he made an absolute fortune. And now he's a very rich guy. He was investigated by the SEC, uh, which is ridiculous for uh, for writing about it because at no point did he kind of you know urge people to buy. There are a lot of other people urging people to hold on and not sell and buy. But he, he uh, as a, he was registered with FINRA, which is kind of what the, the, the legal peril is for him. But, you know, he, he, he quit his job. Uh, he never advised clients and he made an absolute fortune. And he just, he was extremely gutsy and had almost perfect timing in terms of when he sold about half of his position. And now he's a big, or last we checked, uh, a pretty big individual shareholder in GameStop. And so, uh, so he's a very how, rich guy. How, how, how did it start? And then how did Elon Musk and, and Chamath and all these other billionaires get involved? And, and of course, they made money because they have enormous social proof. Whatever yeah. they say, the stock goes up. But uh, uh, just talk about the, the timeline of, of what happened. So GameStop started to to rise um the first kind of there was a, a initial short squeeze um when the stock market started going through the roof in april of 2020 when the, everything bounced back people were looking for things that were beaten down and there was an initial post on wall street bet saying the the greatest short squeeze of your life how to bankrupt institutional investors by buying the stock and for a couple of days there was a big short squeeze and that's when keith gill first made his post saying, well, now there's the possibility of a short squeeze, which was never part of my original thesis, but that that also could be a way to make money in this stock. And then it died down. It died down for several months uh, until the fall or the late summer uh, of 2020. And during the summer of 2020, you had this interesting thing going on where you had this big player in the options market. People called it the NASDAQ whale. It turned out to be a huge investment fund that was doing this was buying lots and lots, doing the same thing that the, the Wall Street bets players would do later, buying lots and lots of out-of-the-money out puts on certain tech stocks. It started to you know, kind of become a self-fulfilling prophecy and drive the market higher. You had this big rally over the summer in several large tech stocks. And it turns out it was Masayoshi Son. It was this, this Japanese multi-billionaire, personally through his own accounts and through his company's accounts, SoftBank, buying lots and lots of these stocks. And that planted the seed in a lot of people's ideas. You know, you could do this with retail money. You could you could create this so-called gamma squeeze that I mentioned earlier in the podcast in stocks that aren't big, stocks that not a lot of people own, stocks that not a lot of people are watching, but that tend, that have a lot more short interest. You know, GameStop was number one on the list. GameStop is a stock where we should try this. Then you had this guy, Ryan Cohen, who had made a lot of money. He was the founder of Chewy and had sold it uh, to PetSmart. He came in and showed up with a stake in the stock and then it started to take off. And then the snowball got rolling. And then he showed up with a bigger stake. And then he you know, wrote a letter to the board and saying, I think you should do this and I think you should do that. And people got the idea that he would become an activist investor and try to get board representation. And throughout the fall and the winter, GameStop shares surged way past what Keith Gill thought was the fundamental value. Now, if he had just said, okay, when this thing gets to 20, I'm going to get out, uh, then that's all the money he would have made. He would have made a million dollars, right? So so l l l let me just, I I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm just going to, I want to just um, kind of add to some of the things yeah. because it's interesting. So when when someone becomes an activist investor, they um, an activist investor has mm -hmm. 
a, a specific definition legally, yeah. they, they essentially own a stake of probably more than 5% yeah. of the company. And when you own 5% of the company, you actually have to file a filing with the yeah. SEC. So if I buy shares in a company, I don't normally have to tell the SEC. No. I just make the trade. But when you own 5%, you have to file a filing and you have to, you have to state specifically, not only do I own 5%, but I'm, I plan on having discussions with the company. And usually this is called a 13 D filing. And usually when you do this, you also, uh, 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 usually outline what you're going to talk to the company about. Why do you think that there's value in here? What, what kind of value you think could be unlocked? And you also have to be kind of a long-term holder because you can't just buy and sell 5% of a company. It takes, it takes a while. So it, it actually is a legit strategy. And I have play invested professionally with this strategy of piggybacking activist investors because you know they're smart you know they've done their due diligence you know they're in it for the long term you know that they can affect change it's a very successful strategy for instance to follow someone like carl icon right. into into a stock that's worked for many many uh, years and many companies and so it's a legit strategy that's why people get excited when they see there's a smart activist investor involved yeah yeah and this guy ryan cohen was uh you know that's what everyone said gamestop has to have a real e-commerce strategy here's this guy and you know he not only did he make a lot of money in in e-commerce he made money in a cursed category so he founded chewy which you know is a uh, sells pet food and pet supplies and yeah. pet medicine you know that you know back in in your day when you were a day trader pets.com is like is the poster boy for just a yeah. crappy stock you know that just people are like how you know how did you know even get to that value and like it, the whole thing from ipo to bankruptcy was less than a year it was just a dumb idea way before it's time and, and he sold for three billion dollars yeah exactly so he 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 succeeded where there had been this really famous high profile failure and he's a very smart guy very savvy operator and so it's not just that he's a rich guy you know coming into this company he's a young guy he understood memes he was cool um you know and he you know so there was this legitimate hope that he could come in and shake things up, tell the company what to do. Of course, not now, fast forward, he's the, the chairman of the company uh, with the larger stake. But at that time, him showing up set this thing on fire, it kind of lit the, the rocket uh, that would explode in, in January. And so he, he really got the, the ball rolling. And the short sellers were, at that point, I, I think should have cut and run uh, or at least taken some, some chips off the table. And they didn't. You know, what they saw were a lot of weak hands. They saw a lot of retail investors. They were following the chatter. Um, people, I won't say who, but people who were active in the trade told me that around November, they began tracking social media sentiment and they didn't think much of it. They just sort of, you know, what the posts that they saw were like, yeah, diamond hands were long. You know, they didn't see anything fundamental. And so they they weren't worried. But they, what they failed to see was this, this upswell of, of enthusiasm. What they didn't understand was the, the crowd psychology, and they didn't understand how many people had opened retail accounts and the kind of the, the, mag, the magnification that derivatives would give them. You know, there's an ex absolute explosion in uh, an options trading. And frankly, a lot of people who have no business trading options, I mean, they were, people were getting approved to trade options who had no idea what they were doing. Like, they, they demonstrably had no idea what they were doing. They would buy an out-of-the-money option, which means you're buying something if something happens in the future, if the share price rises. And then they're, ex they're you know, exercising them immediately. So they're basically giving themselves a 100% chance of losing all their money. 
because they didn't understand what they had bought. You had a lot of people doing that. It was pretty embarrassing for Robinhood and these other retail brokers who allowed them, you know, they had to fill out a form saying, yes, I understand what I'm doing. Yes, I'm experienced. And of course they weren't. I mean, there was just, just no way that they knew what they were doing. And, you know, but they, but listen, you, you give a bunch of child soldiers AK-47s, they could still kill you, right? I mean, you know, there's still, still an AK-47. They, they might get lucky and, and, you know, hit you in the head. And, and that's kind of what was going on in these months leading up to the meme stock squeeze. And, and these hedge funds were just, were, did not recognize the danger that they were in. What happened next? So what happened next is it gathered more and more momentum. And then you had, and, and, and Melvin Capital, by the way, which is the real high profile loser in this, you know, they lost approximately $6 billion and, you know, not just on GameStop, but just basically on, in, in general, in the squeeze, including stocks that they were long because people basically picked them off. They, they kind of, they saw what they owned and, you know, they, they, you know, if you, if you, like if you go to, on Wall Street, you know, if you want a friend, get a dog, right? I mean, people, other people in the business were, there's a lot of professionals who could have you know, jumped on these funds that were losing money and kind of helped to bleed them dry. It wasn't just retail investors, which is the kind of the, the narrative that was, was posed there. Um, but you had a guy named Andrew Left, who's a very famous, uh, very notorious short seller, uh, who came in, had made a lot of money shorting frauds, shorting overvalued companies, shorting penny stocks and things like that. He was right more often than he was wrong, uh, and came in and basically publicly called them out. You know, he came in, in January, 2020, when this thing was on fire, uh, and said, you know, you guys don't know what you're talking about. The stock is going to be back to 20 soon. It was like $40 at the time. Uh, you know, you're the suckers at the poker table. I think I'm quoting him exactly on a Twitter. You know, I'm going to have a, um, a live stream tomorrow. And it was like just waving a red flag in front of a bunch of bulls. You know, he, he basically tormented, uh, these guys and he was tempting fate. And these guys, now they had a real enemy. They had a, a specific person. They hacked his accounts. He, he couldn't do the live stream. And he, he won't say, um, uh, he's, he's in, you know, in the book, but he won't say how much money he lost. He said it was, you know, more than he had hoped, but not a devastating amount, but he lost, he had, he said he'd lost about a hundred percent. So he, he, he lost his entire bet, um, in a matter of basically several hours, uh, in this stock. And he also, it, it was like throwing blood in the water with a bunch of sharks circling. Like, you know, that, that was the kind of the final piece of the puzzle that led this thing to explode in, uh, in January, 2021. And then it wasn't just GameStop. People looked at, okay, what else is like GameStop? Oh, there's AMC, the movie chain that's almost bankrupt. This thing is heavily shorted. Oh, there's uh, this cost, the maker of wired stereo headphones that hasn't been a thing for 10 years. Oh, there's Blackberry. Remember Blackberries? You know, Blackberry's heavily shorted. You know, Blackberry's business didn't turn around as a result of this, but you know, people saw, you know, saw something there. Also, ironically, the strangest thing of all, there is a company called Blockbuster Liquidating, which is the liquidating the bankrupt assets of Blockbuster. And that went up a couple of thousand percent. It was just a penny stock. You know, all kinds of Tootsie Roll. Tootsie Roll. You know, that 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 went up a bunch. All these stocks that that happened to be heavily shorted, they, all they had in common was that they were kind of loser stocks that these guys were short. And they went through the roof. And you know, it was this same group of funds that had made bets against them for the same reasons, pretty sound reasons, they thought. And they just went through the roof during the same, you know, short period in, in, in January. And so it was, you know, it was an absolute disaster. And, 
And you know, who would think that AMC, the movie theater chain that was dying because of the pandemic, and GameStop, which was dying because of digitized games, would both go up a couple of thousand percent at the same time? It's not in your model. Your analysts don't, don't think that that's going to happen because why would it happen, right? So usually when the stock price goes up, it has nothing to do with the company. Like the company doesn't make more money because their stock price goes up no. unless they're having an IPO. Unless they offer, they do what's called a secondary offering yeah. and they sell shares to the public. So did AMC and GameStop take uh, advantage of the sharp move up and sell some shares and raise some money? Well, first of all, lots of insiders did at these companies. Anyone who was able to sell stock, whether it was mutual fund managers or, um, or you know, there was a Chinese conglomerate that made a ton of money. There was a Chinese billionaire who made a ton of money. Anyone who was kind of stuck holding these things for whatever reason dumped their stock. And yeah, and AMC, they had something called an at-the-market offering where they could sell stock at the market. They didn't have to go and you know, put out a prospectus and do whatever. They could just, just say, hey, tomorrow we're selling a bunch of stock because we all have authorization to do it. And like, holy crap, you know, have you seen our stock price? Let's sell now. They had they'd been lent a bunch of, of money, of debt that was convertible. Silver Lake, which is this, uh, this private equity firm, had lent them money, was standing to lose a bunch of money. And instead they made a bonanza. Uh, the company sold a bunch of stock because there were all these people lined up to buy it who had no idea what they were doing and just were basically buying the stock at or near the top. And so at the expense of a bunch of inexperienced retail investors, you had a bunch of uh, corporate insiders, a bunch of uh, hedge funds and mutual funds that were stuck owning the stock that all of a sudden cashed out, private equity firms that cashed out at or near the top. You know, so you had these people who were like, yeah, let's stick it to the man. No, the man just stuck it to you. He just let, you know, left you with a bunch of stock. And this was like a, like pennies from heaven for them. GameStop was not, um, I probably on the advice of their lawyers, they, they didn't sell stock during the squeeze itself, but then later they sold billions of dollars of stock. And so when a company is, is like going to go bankrupt soon and they can raise money, that, that changes the playbook, that changes the narrative. Right. And so both of these companies and other companies too went out that then during the squeeze or in the months after, AMC just kept on going back to the well again and again and again. And GameStop went to the well a couple of times and they sold billions of dollars of stock to this right. enthusiastic army of retail investors. I mean, I, I don't think it's very nice because, you know, okay, yeah, you can stay in business now, but you, you did it because you sold stock that you knew was overvalued. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been selling stock. But they had to do it. I mean, like GameStop right now has a billion dollars of net cash, yeah. probably up from about zero. Yeah. And they, they, they burn about $50 million a year. Yeah. So they're, that means they're in business for 20 more years if, at, the, at the current rate. Yeah, they could totally change their business. I mean, good, good for them. That's the way it works. I mean, caveat emptor. But what, what you know, you, it's, it, it's also manipulative in a way. You, you talked about like Wall Street being full of, of sleazy people. Well, the corporate world is full of sleazy people too. I mean, they're basically saying, yeah, we know the stock is overvalued, so we're going to strike while the iron is hot, and we're going to sell money to this enthusiastic army of retail investors, and we're going to use it to invest in our business, and therefore our business is going to be worth a lot, and we can pay ourselves a salary for a lot more years. I mean, I don't know. Is that, do, do you think there's something wrong with that, or do you think it's okay? I think it's okay because they have a fiduciary responsibility to the shareholders, which means they've got it. If they can choose a legal way to keep the company in business, as opposed to declaring bankruptcy, 
they kind of have to do it or they'll get sued. Mm-hmm. So, so it's not, it's not even whether it's ethical or unethical. It's, it's like they have to do it. It would be illegal for them not to take advantage of opportunity if they're mildly intelligent. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's a, to me, it's, it's ethically, it's a gray area. Um, it's a gray area. It's, it's, a, they, it's a gray area for it. sure. When, when you have, let's say like an, exe- an executive with options and restricted stock as some of these guys have, and like they, they try to keep the ball rolling and they engage with the, the retail, um, buyers of the stock. Oh, just, that, just, just keep it going until September or October until my restricted stock vests, you know, and then, I mean, they made an absolute bonanza. You know, you're, you're the CEO of a company. Okay. Maybe it was bad luck that the, the, you know, the pandemic happened, but you know, that, that's, that's the breaks, you know, you're, you're already a rich guy. Now you got much richer, you know, because, you know, because of, of these, these people who sort of you're pandering to, I mean, I, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's that ethical, you know I mean? Now, but, but, but here's what's so unusual about this situation is that this happens all the time. And like you mentioned, all the mutual funds got out because they finally had a, an exit. They, they didn't have an exit before all the hedge funds got out that were in it at $2. They got out at like $50 or a hundred or whatever. And just think of the enormous amount of buying that retail was doing in order to counteract huge, huge multi $10 billion mutual funds that were selling like buying like that hardly ever, you know, defeats the institutions and this, and the insiders. And this time it did, this is so unusual that it happened this way. So, so that you could say, yes, what they did was certainly unethical. Let's say the executives who sold, but let's also not forget they had they also have to file when an, when an insider like an executive or even a mutual fund yeah. uh, sells they also have to file with the SEC so it's publicly disclosed and still there was buying yeah. usually there's not that much buying to count like when one insider sells the stock usually falls because yeah. people yeah. say oh if the CEO's selling I'm gonna sell but this didn't happen here so people were like more stupid than the insiders were unethical <laughs> well I mean you you've had okay, you know, the biggest people don't talk about it, but the biggest shareholder in GameStop was Fidelity, you know, boring old Fidelity mutual funds. Uh, there was a, a value stock manager there called Joel Tillinghast who owned it in a few of his funds. And he, you know, and Michael Burry owned, uh, the big short guy owned a little over 5% of the company as well. And, you know, between them, you know, they, they dumped all their stock that month because they're not stupid. They, they didn't sell at the very top, I don't think. There were a couple of funds that sold right near the top. There was a guy who got in. It was a company called um, called Permit Capital that that got in and put a guy on the board uh, when GameStop was down in the dumps and said, "We think this is a promising long term story. It can be turned around." Blah blah blah. We really believe in this. You know, long term was six months. This this thing went through the roof and they sold out. And they, you know, they quoted the guy and he's like, yeah, I feel like I just went to Disneyland. Like, this is great. This is a bonanza. It's just pennies from heaven. Who would have thought that this would happen? He's not, you know, I mean, he, oh, he also has a fiduciary duty to his shareholders to, to sell. If the stock price goes way above what he thinks the fair value is, it's not his money. It's, you know, he's investing money for, you know, a bunch of pensions and mom and pop and he, he sold out. He made a fantastic return. Fidelity made a fantastic return. There's no way they're going to stick around. And this was a great opportunity because there was so much buying. I mean, yeah, you, as you said, you know, usually you can't sell that, that amount of stock without causing a ripple. They sold it and it was like nothing happened. You know, there were just, just people were just lining up to buy it. Yeah. So, so, okay. So how did it, how did it ultimately end? Like you mentioned, most people who bought in, in the, in this run up 
ended up losing money? Like what eventually happened here? Well, it depends when you bought. And I mean, and again, we're, we're pre-taping this, so I don't know what the share price is going to be of, of GameStop when we speak, could be higher, could be lower. A share price can stay high for uh, a long, long time. The thing is that if today, it, it basically, there, you have two kinds of holders uh, of things like AMC and GameStop. You have index funds that have to hold it. It's in an index. I, I don't care what the price is. I don't care what the value is. It's X percent of the index, so it's X percent of my fund. I own it. So you have like, you look at, at a list of shareholders and it's, you know, Vanguard and BlackRock and all these index fund providers. And then you have retail investors and that's it. It's just two, two kinds of investors. And retail investors are a big, which is really unusual, by the way, to have like a, such a big share of stock owned by retail investors. But they're the only ones who own it at, you know, 200 or 2,000 times earnings, you know, because they, they're kind of true believers. It's not like, you know, Tesla. People have said Tesla's overvalued for a long, long time. But you have, you know, that's been kind of accepted by the establishment. You have a lot of established hedge fund managers or, and, and mutual fund managers who, who own Tesla because they, it's a stock in the Standard Poor's 500. It's one of the biggest companies in America. You kind of have to own it. Otherwise, you know, you're really putting yourself in danger of lagging. You kind of justify owning it. But you, you don't have to own GameStop. You don't have to own AMC. So it, it's just retail investors who own it. And so what happens, I mean, I guess if one day they get tired of it and uh, more people start selling than buying, then they'll be selling pressure on it and it'll go down. And then the last people out the door will kind of regret having owned it. Or maybe they won't because there are a lot of people who own it who own it as a statement, which is also very unusual. That That's one thing that makes this, this whole thing unusual is you have people who kind of own a few shares as a matter of principle, because they want to stick it to the man, and I—that's the kind of—that's the part that I, I find is really sad. I mean, people lose money all the time in the stock market, but if you you bought a stock because you want to stick it to the man, because you feel bad about inequality and your parents' house being foreclosed on after the financial crisis, or the student loans you got stuck with, or your crappy minimum wage job, and you went out and opened a Robinhood account and bought ten shares of GameStop to make a statement. And then you lost money on paper or you lost money in real life because you were trying to, to make a statement. Well, you, you didn't stick it to the man. I mean, I mean, it was a really fascinating yeah. episode. That's why I, I spent all these, you know, this time staying up late every night, just talking to people and writing a book about it because it's a crazy, fascinating, great story. Stories like that don't come up along very often. And I wanted to tell how it happened and explain how it happened. But you didn't stick it to the man. I mean, it wasn't like an airtight trap for those hedge funds. And there's this theory that it still is, you know? I mean, how did you find out? Like, did you, were you able to get in touch with some of these Reddit users who were anonymous? I mean, I spoke to people who were not anonymous. I, you know, spent too many hours, you know, going, you know, speaking to people who are on the board, who are, are and are, are not using pseudonyms or let's say they use pseudonyms, but spoke to me. But I mean, I, you know, I, I could have spent all day speaking to people. I think the, at, at the time that we're, we're speaking, the kind of people who are, who are still active in the community, it, it, it it's kind of, I, I, I feel bad for them because it, it, it's like people who said, no, 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 this, this story is not over. I think that's a lot of people kind of, when I, I write an article for the Wall Street Journal about it, at this time, the book is not out at the time of our, uh, that we're speaking. The book is, is going to come out January 25th. Uh, people will say, hey, this isn't over. 
this didn't end yet. Why are you saying this is over? Why are you writing about this in the past tense? This is an ongoing revolution. And it kind of isn't. I mean, markets, you know, the things have changed in markets in terms of, of the, the things that are available to a retail investor. Like, you know, it used to be that, you know, if you, if you had $200, you weren't, you couldn't even open a brokerage account. It wasn't even worth your while. Like you'd, you'd be stupid to open up a brokerage account $200 because you'd whittle it away just getting started and buying a couple of stocks. Certainly you couldn't be active because it just wouldn't pay. And, and today you have all these people who, who can be players because you have like a million people with $200 is a lot of buying power, especially if you're buying options. And, and so they're waiting for something to happen. And there are these theories out there that there's, that, you know, there's going to be this kind of like second coming event, this mother of all short squeezes, and they're going to bankrupt the hedge funds and really show them. And that's never going to happen. Never, ever. Yeah. It's sort of like whenever you get to the point where everybody says, we're going to give it to the man, we're going to, we're going to show them. That's when you have to get out. <laughs> right. And I, I feel badly for them. And I, you know, I, I spoke to like really in, intelligent young people, um, who don't know a, a lot about finance or they, maybe they, they've convinced themselves that it's, oh no, we did our DD, we did our due diligence. So where, where are you getting this thing? I'm like, oh, we're, you know, they're, they're, it, you know, that's the problem with like, you know, people who say like, I, I'm not going to get, and I, I apologize to anyone who for religious or whatever reasons, you know, is out there listening to this, who isn't vaccinated against COVID, uh, because they did their research online, but you know, the research you did online is research you did on, on Facebook or some internet forum. It's not research you did, um, going to a, a leading epidemiological authority telling you not to get vaccinated. And it's the same thing with, with finance. But I will say this, one thing that I find really encouraging in this is that young people are skeptical about Wall Street advice because they should be. Wall Street advice is bad advice. Okay, so, I mean, it's not like your doctor's advice. You know, if you go to your doctor and your doctor tells you, uh, you know, you really should stop smoking, you really should lose weight, you really should get a polio vaccine and a measles vaccine, you know, listen to them. They went to medical school and they, you know, they're looking out for your best interest and they took the Hippocratic Oath. People on Wall Street who are not fiduciaries, who are out there saying you should do this and you should not do that, there's a, as much chance of them being wrong as right. They might even be convinced that they're right, but there are, there are a lot of charlatans and there are a lot of people who don't know what they're talking about. And even people who do think they know what they're talking about, they're going to give you bad advice on Wall Street. Wall Street advice is, is kind of useless. Unless... It's, it's like, unless the advice is invest for the long run, be prudent, buy index funds, don't pay too much money. There are people out there who are fiduciaries who will give you basically sound advice, but it's really boring advice. It's like eat your vegetables and go to the gym advice. You know, it's kind of generally good advice. It's not specific advice. And the fact that young people are skeptical about the specific advice, they don't want to go to some dude in a suit who gave their parents financial advice. Um... And, and take their advice. Like, I, I, I totally sympathize with that. I mean, th there are just a lot of, of just cranks out there on Wall Street uh, who are not going to help you get rich and retire comfortably. Uh, you know, be skeptical. I mean, definitely be skeptical. I've seen so many different ways. There's not only, like, when people think, scams on wall street they think of illegal stuff the problem with wall street is that there are so many gray areas that people totally get away with what i would call illegal activity but it's just gray area yeah. so it's never prosecuted 
That's the problem with Wall Street is that let's say it's 2% ethical, 2% totally illegal scams, and 96% gray area scams that will never get prosecuted. And that's the problem is that, for instance, if you go to your, your, your stock market advisor and he says, oh, put your money in these mutual funds, He's forgetting to tell you that the exact same mutual funds exist without the marketing fees. Like mutual yeah. funds have two forms, yeah. the marketing fee version and the non-marketing fee version. There's never any reason to put money in the marketing fee version, yeah. but that's the version that all the banks recommend. Sure. So that to me is a gray area scam. And uh, I have story after story. It's yeah. just no, unbelievable. My, my wife and I bought like uh, this guy, a nice guy wanted to sell his term insurance and Oh, like I, you know, I so we, I, I, I said, you know, I should really have life insurance out of work. I mean, what I have, I have three kids and whatever, you know, and, um, you know, so I, I compared rates and said, you know, the rate that this guy is giving is actually like a good rate. Why not, you know, go with him. But of course the whole thing was just like a, a come on. And he, he said, you know, we signed all the papers and he sat there in our living room, giving me this whole spiel about this stuff that, I mean, I, I write, I was an investment analyst for, you know, for, for 10 years, I've been a, a financial journalist for almost 20 years. You know, I, I know about this stuff. I read about all this this sleazy stuff. And he's like trying to sell us these products like that are, I know are just, you know, annuities and, and private REITs and all kinds of sleazy stuff. And I just sat there like listening to him. I, I just, my wife was like, why did you, what was he sitting there? like talking to you about all that time. And it's, I just wanted to hear how this thing is pitched. I want to hear how he sells it. He was very slick. Like he didn't lie. He, he, right. at no point did he, did he lie, but at no point, but he didn't volunteer information about how much money he, he's going to make off of this, which is a, an egregious, crazy amount of money for a, a product that I shouldn't buy. I didn't buy it, of course, but I just wanted to to hear the whole spiel. And I, I'll go and I'll sign up for stuff where I know I'm going to get stuff in the mail. I've got a whole folder of stuff that I get mailed at home, all kinds of sleazy comments, because I just I collect it. I, I, I love hearing bad investment advice because I'm like a connoisseur of it, not because I want to take it. but and And so I feel badly for these young people for sort of thinking they're sticking to the man. But I, I guess it's hopeful. A, it's hopeful that they're investing at all. Because I think in, in order to, you know, pay for your retirement, you need to, Wall Street needs to, to you know, you need to tame Wall Street. Wall Street doesn't need to, to you know, to stick it to you. You need to, 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 to get something out of Wall Street, which is that, you know, the long-term compounding that you can get investing in sound long-term investments is you know the power of compound interest is a like the eighth wonder of the world. You know you should be invested. I, I tell my my sons and my sons' friends, and to just buy something and don't look at it and just trust it and and don't worry and don't watch the financial headlines. And if if more people did that, then more people would be you know comfortably retired. And there's a retirement crisis in our country and a savings crisis in our country. So it's nice that they at least have an account that they. They're interested in their, you know, and, and it's also nice that they're skeptical about, you know, some dude in a suit giving them expensive, wrong financial advice, you know, so that's, that's all good. But then I don't know. I, I, I hope that enough of these people, some, uh, it's probably going to be a minority of this new generation that got into investing with this whole meme stock craze that then turns around and says, well, that, that didn't work out very well. But let me think about what I did wrong, and let's let's pick up a a good book like a random walk down Wall Street and and learn about you know how this thing actually works and and what I should do. I, I I'm sure convinced that some minority of them will will turn around and and do the prudent thing, but they aren't yet, you know, <laughs> as of this speaking. 
Look, uh, Spencer Jacob, author of The Revolution That Wasn't, GameStop, Reddit, and the Fleecing of Small Investors. This is like a, a reading a thriller. I mean, I almost couldn't believe this when it was happening. Uh, uh, Jay, who's the audio engineer, who's on this podcast as well. Jay, did you invest in any of these meme stocks when the whole thing was happening? Uh, I did. Actually, I did bought, uh, I didn't buy GameStop because by the time I look at GameStop, it's already a couple hundred dollars, but I did buy in some AMC stock when it was like $15. What's AMC right now? Uh, it's at 43. Wow. Yeah. Good job, Jay. I did sell a couple when it went to 50. Yeah, good for you. Yeah, but I don't. I don't buy much. I, I, I. My, my principle is I only invest. I'm on the all this meme stock. I only put in less than a hundred dollars or less than two hundred dollars. So like, I don't blow off. What so you had fun with I it. I have. Yes, oh, I have fun with it. And then it's also I like to have fun and I like meme all the time. So yeah, so yeah, it's just a meme for me. Yeah. Well, uh, Spencer, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and. Let us know if you got any other hot tips to, okay. to, that are, that, that are right. good you'll stories. Be, you'll, be the, you'll be the first to, uh, to hear about it. Uh, thanks so much, James. I, I love your podcast. Uh, Thank you. And um, it's a thrill to, uh, to be on it. Thanks for having me. Well, well, come on anytime. If there's something you want to talk about, give us a holler. We'll have you on. This is, a, this is great stuff. I always love talking about this. Okay, I might just do that. And, and great book, Spencer, as well. I, I, I highly recommend people get it to see all the different players in this and, and how this evolved and... And who knows, it might give people some ideas, bad or good. So, yeah, good, Spencer hope, Jacob, yeah. yeah, the revolution that wasn't. Thanks so much, Spencer. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated.